Welcome to Episode 8 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with PsychArmor trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to psycharmor.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. And you can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. This week, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Keita Franklin, a member of the PsychArmor Board of Directors. A national policy leader with over 20 years of experience, Dr. Franklin is the chief clinical officer at Loyal Source Government Solutions, the nation's leading healthcare solutions provider, and also serves as the co-director of the Columbia Lighthouse Project, a Columbia University, New York State Psychiatric Institute initiative focused on preventing suicide risk. Prior to joining the Loyal Source team, Dr. Franklin was a senior executive at PsychHub in both the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense. In her government work, she frequently represented the DOD and the VA during testimony in front of both chambers of Congress and advised the Office of the President, the Domestic Policy Council, and the National Security Council. During her tenure, Dr. Franklin led enterprise-wide programming for veterans, military service members, and their families. She also consulted with numerous entities on issues related to military and veteran mental health, suicide prevention, and children and families. Let's get into my conversation with Keita and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. So uh, you're a member of the board of directors at PsychArmor, and it's great to have you on the show. You have a lot of expertise when it comes to mental health in general and suicide prevention in particular, and you've held key positions at both the DOD and the VA, but people like to have an origin story, right? There is a lot of the reasons why we get into the mental health field, uh, a lot of them are very personal reasons. I'm curious to hear how you got started in the work that you're doing. Yes, thanks so much, Dwayne. I'm happy to be on, on another podcast with you. I always appreciate getting to visit with you about these topics. I, I'm a social worker by training. I think you know that, and I'm super proud about being a social worker. Whenever I get to talk to people, I always tell folks, first and foremost, I'm a social worker. And I think I knew I wanted to be in the field probably very, very young. So I have one of those classic stories where you know early on what you want to do. But I was a, as a young girl, grew up on military bases. My father was active duty Navy. He was an enlisted sailor. And so I knew quite a bit growing up about the lifestyle of the military families. But also my sister, my only sibling, was born with cerebral palsy and a seizure disorder. She has epilepsy. And so I I saw early on her trials of trying to reach her full potential. She's, like I said, just two years younger than me. So I knew that there was something there to helping people reach their full potential, even as a young girl. And I thought that was for me. I wanted to get into a profession where I could work every day helping people do better and in helping them do better, I learn how to do better. So I just absolutely love the profession. And having, you know, 
I'm sure you've seen and I've seen that can be challenging for siblings if they have a special needs sibling, especially one that's so close in age. But you turn that around, obviously being supportive of your sister, but somewhat of a caregiver of your sister along with your parents, especially being in the military. I assume your father was gone at, at, at long periods of time. That had to be challenging, but it's also probably very rewarding. Yes, I think so. Like I definitely learned a lot. You know, my father went to sea quite a bit and over the period of my childhood, long before the war effort really started. I was born in 1972. And so my father was in and out of sea duty three months on, three months off. Sometimes three would turn into longer for a while. He was attached to like a fast attack kind of environment where he went for shorter periods of time. And I do remember that being very difficult for the family, especially difficult for me. I felt over the years very close to him as a young girl, and I hated him leaving, but definitely had to figure out ways around it. I volunteered for Special Olympics as a kid, and even years back spent my lunch period volunteering in the high school in the classroom for children with challenges. And so I I had early on felt drawn to that population of people with special needs. I never ended up working in an official capacity with, you know, children with developmental delays or anything like that. But I am drawn to this idea that you shouldn't be limited by anything anyone tells you when it comes to reaching your full potential. If someone says you can't walk or you can't, you're never going to talk or you're You'll always have this delay. Like, I think, hmm, we'll see about that. (laughs) So, And I think that obviously parlays well into working with military clients. Obviously, if individuals are catastrophically wounded or injured, or we all have that limit of can't, right? I I can't do what I used to be able to do. In, In not going into developmentally disabled work, as a clinician. How did you get involved in working with the military? I, my husband's active duty, Air Force. And so I knew as a military spouse that I needed a career that was also going to be portable, that could pick up and move as we moved. We moved to five bases in 10 years before settling down. And so I was drawn, I think, from my childhood and early on to working in the military culture. And I started right before 9-11. We were at McCord Air Force Base and I had been working in the military treatment facility. So I was part of the hospital system. I'm from New England, right? I'm from Massachusetts. And here I was in Washington State. And yeah, 9-11 kicked off and I had just one daughter. My daughter was a few years old and I was working in the clinic and found myself in a position where suddenly we were standing up deployed spouses groups and there was a need to help people who suddenly found themselves single with young children. And so it was an interesting time, but definitely formative, like really laid the foundation for 20 years of helping that population. And I was going to say that. We look up and it's 20 years later. You know, I recall I was actually in Germany on 9-11. So for me, 9-11 happens in the afternoon. Yes. That's where a lot of my memories are. And and thinking about how my military career, I had been probably nine years. So my military career split that and everything changed in an instant. And you were already working with military, but all of a sudden, thinking back to that time at the beginning of 9-11, from your point of view... Was it conceivable that this would be a 20-year-long difficult career? No. Early on, I really thought that it would probably be like a structured point in time. Like we were going to go through this stressful time as a community and we would come out the other side. And I don't think I had any forethought that this would be decades long, that there would be the injuries and the long-term mental health implications that the, the community has you know, struggled with. 
early on in the military social work field, we focused on relocation and how stressful that was for families. And of course, this is like before the internet, right? Before you could look up where you were moving and find out everything you needed to know. We focused on some parent separation. Like I said, my dad left and I knew there were people that went to training exercises to another state or went out to sea, but it it wasn't so focused on trauma and the danger and what it meant to come back after having been exposed to trauma, what that meant for your family relationships. You know, I spent some time during my PhD coursework studying military marriages and parent-child relationships, and I'm just always amazed by what it takes for service members to come back and start to perform their roles as a dad or a mom, and having missed certain developmental times of a little child's life. And I'm just humbled by just how difficult that is, and how social workers can be part of the solution for helping people like that. It's not easy. And I think during the global war on terror, we probably had a crash course in that, because even the trauma that we were, you know, perhaps, of course, Gulf War, but we were looking at Vietnam veterans. And this was, of course, in the VA, not even in the active military. But even previous deployments were, at least with our current clients, were a matter of a year or something like that. When I started to deploy in 2006, my kids were in kindergarten and first grade. When I stopped deploying, they were approaching high school. That's a very different dynamic. You talk about those developmental stages that I was in and out, literally, There wasn't a year between 2006 and 2013 where I wasn't gone part of or all of the year. And that had to be a crash course for we're basically building the plane as we're flying it. Yes. And how does that impact the kids over time? I'm always, and and of course it impacts every kid differently, but I'm very, very curious about this and trying to think through the implications of having periods of parental absence especially when it's a parent that is very instrumental and involved in development and caretaking. So like many parents are dads and moms today. So it is, it's Mm -hmm. interesting. And I'm glad that we're able to talk about it today, at least, and bring it out to the forefront. So, and then of course, your work later on evolved into suicide prevention roles that you held at both the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs. Suicide is a lagging indicator of a lot of these underlying problems. Going from general military social work to more family specifics to suicide. How did that transition occur? You know, this is like the goodness of the social work career, right? Like they always say early on when you teach graduate students, they always tell you, you can work anywhere. You can work with new babies all the way up to death and across the lifespan. And I always was early on thought that can't be right. You can work anywhere, but but it is actually true. I started off my career early on in child welfare doing some work like as a child protective worker, working with inner city youth. We were at one point stationed at Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. And I had the chance to do some work with Native American populations where you learn quite a bit about different cultures that are not your own and how to navigate across state systems. And so I had this keen interest in child welfare, which is largely focused on trauma. And so I think the common theme from jumping from that to military family work and child abuse prevention and domestic violence and sexual assault. I I spent over five years with Marine Corps at their headquarters leading behavioral health, again, during the war effort across multiple program areas. And so the common thread amongst all of it is really this focus on trauma and the impact of trauma, whether that's on relationships or in extreme situations, of course, suicide risk. I've probably spent the last eight or 10 years in the field of suicide, just, I think, a little bit drawn to how complex the problem is 
how difficult it is. I, I am always wanting to like, if it's a hard, difficult thing, like definitely want to be a part of that, want to work on the solutions for that. And also taking this idea that we talked about earlier, where people can reach their full potential. I equally so think like large systems can reach their full potential, whether that's like a small county that can do all that it can on behalf of a population and reach its full potential or the whole DOD, the whole Marine Corps, the same principles apply on helping systems reach their full potential, which is very much rooted in the social work profession. Like the idea that clients aren't broken, the VA is not broken, that like systems need to work better on behalf of clients. And in some cases, the system is very complicated. We see with these large federal agencies, but it's definitely ripe for doing better and always working to improve just just like people are, you know, in a place where people can do better systems can as well. And I don't wonder, and, and maybe I'm making the assumption here, but it sounds like that's really a drive for your work with PsychArmor because PsychArmor can be a a part of smoothing those ridges in, in making those connections within that system. Yes, for sure. You know, I so appreciate the nonprofit space and the VSOs and the MSOs, these veteran service organizations that help military and veterans because the VA as a system cannot do it alone, nor can the military side. And so I've always been grounded in this idea that like we do better together. And so whether that's volunteerism, military spouses, whether it's, you know, bringing in new people to the equation from innovative sectors, IT solutions, like just this constant drive of let's bring everybody to the table. Let's help each other together in psych armors. That's also, I think, at the heart of what they do too. raise the bar by building community capacity of, of partnerships. And of course, there's strong interest in training is I think also been a draw to me as well. Like this idea that when we teach people about the military and veteran culture, they're able to do better. And so I've stayed connected with them over the years. Well, and I think that when you were talking about agencies or groups or communities being able to raise to their full potential, many times they're not aware, one, that they need to change or that there is the problem. We talk about this public health approach. The first step is just defining yeah. the problem and, and needing to be able to say, okay, awareness and then action leads to change. PsychArmor does a lot with raising that awareness, just bringing things to people's attention. Yes, for sure. And some of the things they bring to people's attention are so, on the one hand, simple. Talking with people about how to talk to a service member, one of the classic, I think, PsychArmor products that like first came out that everybody like it was on fire at one point was this like 15 things. You're maybe familiar with that one. 15 things veterans wish you knew about them. It still applies today. I can't remember when it was created, probably five plus years ago. But they're very basic concepts that continue to resonate today, which I think is, is helpful. And then again, more resources to be able to make those connections. A mentor of mine once said that we need an agency of agency. Like you said, no one agency is going to be the solution. And so having an agency of agency that has a resource that that is a common resource that like they can be used in different ways, that's important for some of this systems creation, I think. Yes, I think so. And just bringing the entire system together, identifying what the strengths are of the various players within the system, and then finding ways to do more together, whether that's creative interventions, whether it's training. I think as well, I've learned as a social worker over the years, just the importance of, of good policy. We have this tendency to just think we can make a difference by providing direct care to one person at a time or one system at a time. And a lot of that does start with the right resources and the right policy and contributing to that kind of environment as well. So I, I think that's helpful. And I've appreciated over the years PsychArmor's willingness to 
partner up with anybody and everybody when it comes to saving lives for suicide prevention, but also just educating people on signs and symptoms of mental health risk and being there for the community when it comes to like all things education. And definitely, yes, that mental health and wellness, you and I as practitioners, you uh, specifically as is working in suicide, but then that's just one aspect of all of the system. There's the employment stuff and the caregiver stuff and all of these other things outside of what we're familiar with, which is that, and not to be all things to all people, but being able to provide a wide range of support to a wide range of organizations. Yeah, you bring up such a good point. Over the years, I think, especially in the field of suicide, I know you and I've talked about this, people think that if we can just bring the hospital to bear, right? People who struggle with suicide risk are just mentally ill. And if we just can, you know, the hospital could solve it. And if the hospital could have solved it, they would have solved it years ago. And it, having employment is like such a basic thing, like having a job. It seems, sounds basic. But, but at the same time, like we forget that that's actually a solution, quote unquote, when it comes to suicide prevention or when it comes to buffering against mental health risk, because people feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. They have a mission and someone's waiting on me. I better get there today. You know, I have an important role on this team and I'm valued and my work is important. They, it, it's life-saving. It really is. And so employment also gives them health care access to healthcare and and we hope it gives them fun and friendship. You know, some of my best friends, people that have helped me the most over the years are people I've met at work, you know, colleagues I've met over the years at different military bases that I've stayed in touch with that have just been incredibly helpful to me at times when I've needed it most. So it is more than just this idea of having a job and getting an income. Absolutely. These protective factors. I got a colleague of mine who says it's very hard to talk about your inner child if you don't know where you're sleeping tonight. It's those Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But then also it's that I've had clients that were struggling, struggling, struggling until we were finally get them some financial stability. Then sort of the the world opened up for them, right? And the sun and, and, and they were able to start addressing some of the things in And definitely, from your standpoint, where you've come from, a lot of people, in my experience, I'm sure the same as yours, we get into this field for a reason. We get into this field because we want to help and because we care. I really appreciate you for sharing your reasons today. If people want to find out more about some of the stuff that you're doing, where can they find that or how can they connect with you? I think they can connect, definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. Kita Franklin, and certainly you can connect with me through PsychArmor. I'm also the chief clinical officer at Loyal Source, which is a healthcare provider in Orlando that offers a number of behavioral health related services in the private sector, but also to government for sure. I'd love to hear from people. I especially love to hear from new social workers that want to talk shop. So certainly have folks reach out. No problem there. All right. We'll make sure that all those are in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Have a good day now. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. Kita's story of why she got into the helping profession, the social work, and especially the clinical social work profession, gives a great glimpse into not only her background, but is also indicative of how someone ends up doing the work that they're doing. As a young girl, having a family member with special needs, she already found that she wanted to help people reach their full potential. I think it's important to understand that circumstance, happenstance, and serendipity plays a role in how people end up doing what they're doing. 
This is especially helpful for service members who leave the military and wonder what they're going to do with their lives after the service. The same question mark that's in a young adult's head, what does the future hold for me, exists in the head of a service member after four years or 24 years in the military. Serendipity is the concept of beneficial things happening by chance. In the field of career development, it's widely understood that serendipity plays a huge role in how we end up doing what we're doing. As an example, my father-in-law, who's in his 80s, spent a career as a road crew construction foreman and a road crew supervisor. He grew up on a farm outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, and they happened to be building the Alcoa Highway near the farm. As a young boy, he would sit on the side of the hill and watch the road crews working. Eventually, he started pitching in to help the road crew, holding signs and things like that, and found himself working in the transportation construction industry. If that section of the highway would have been 15 miles away, for example, he might be a retired farmer today instead of a retired road crew supervisor. Kita is recognized as one of the country's leading experts on military-related suicide prevention, and she got there through military social work, which she arrived at from the combination of being a military spouse and a sister of someone with special needs. The thing about serendipity, something good coming from somewhere that we least expected, is that it's more under our control than we might think. And this is where developing awareness comes in. As Keita and I talked about, education plays a significant role in developing awareness. We can't take advantage of an opportunity if we're not aware of it, and we don't become aware of it if we're not paying attention. Research into the phenomenon of serendipity found that there are three things necessary for someone to be able to take advantage of beneficial chance. First, something has to happen at random, like the building of the highway near my father-in-law's farm, but we also have to have a prepared mind, and there has to be an act of noticing. Of course, there's no way to make the first thing happen, random chance is random chance, but we are absolutely in control of the second two things. We can prepare our minds to be open to possibilities, and we can pay attention to what's happening around us. Consider Kita's career path. While she had a desire to help people, she chose the social work profession in order to have a portable career as a military spouse. She started working in child welfare, which had an element of trauma and family dynamics, and continued that work at the beginning of the global war on terror, supporting families of deployed service members. All of these opportunities popped up at random, but Kita, having a prepared mind and being open to new opportunities, was able to take advantage of them, to the benefit of all that she does for service members, veterans, and their families. So be on the lookout for some random sign that tells you what you're supposed to be doing next in your life. The Psych Armor resource that I'd like to share this week is a course that Keita mentioned in our discussions, 15 Things Veterans Want You to Know. This is part of the Military Cultural Competence Training Portfolio. It's the cornerstone course for Psych Armor and was created to educate anyone who works with, lives with, or cares for service members or veterans. Psych Armor asked hundreds of veterans what they wanted civilians, employers, educators, healthcare providers, and therapists to know about them. These comments were used to create the topics of this course, including five questions you should always ask veterans, one question you should never ask veterans, and 15 facts that promote greater understanding of our veterans. You can find a link to the training in the show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at psycharmor.org forward slash BTM08, as well as on the PsychArmor website. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. 
This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.